0: Hello
2: and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. My co-hosts are Max Linsky of the website Longform.org and Evan Ratliff, formerly of The Atavist Magazine, which I believe just celebrated its 10th anniversary. Is that correct? You are
0: correct, Aaron. It is 10 years from the founding of The Atavist Magazine.
2: Well, I just wanted to salute you. Hey Mazlouf, Evan. I was uh, I was touched. Evan uh, did a whole uh, Twitter thread about the ten year anniversary of the Adamus magazine, and uh, not only did it make me nostalgic for that time in our lives, but it made me feel sort of shameful, Aaron, that I, I think we didn't even acknowledge to each other that Longform had turned ten. I. I'm just not accepting that it happened be- with because it didn't, it didn't happen. I don't see what possible sequence you're talking about. We're not 10 years old. Yes. We were founded before the atavist. Anything, anything could have contributed uh, to this state of affairs. So congratulations to Evan. No congratulations to long form. We'll celebrate 10 when we do 10 years of the podcast. Where are we? Thank we're about you. like seven Thank or eight you. right now. We're, we're, we're getting there. man. <laughs> we're getting there. We're, we're around year eight. Uh, I will also say, Aaron, congratulations to you because you landed a guest for the show this week that all of us have wanted to have on for all of these years that we've been doing the show. Tell me about your conversation with Luke Mogelson. So we have a Reluctant Guests Hall of Fame. I can't tell you who else is in it, but Luke Mogelson has been one of our number one uh, try to gets for a long time. I actually know exactly how long it's been. It's been since 2013 because I... Uh, picked up on the original email thread. Um, he has been reluctant to come on the show. He, he has his reasons for that. Um, I think mostly just not really liking to do personal interviews. Um, but I saw that he had a new piece in the New Yorker. Um, he has been embedded uh, with militias in Michigan and various groups that converged on the Capitol riots He was inside the Capitol and took some footage in there. And the minute I saw that footage, I had a lot of questions. And so I thought I would take another stab and email him. And he replied. He's one of my favorite uh, reporters, honestly, like he wrote a story which I was trying to get him on last time about um, where he traveled with a group of um, refugees seeking asylum. Uh, from Indonesia to an island that is Australian territory and where people uh, go who are trying to get asylum in Australia. Um, That was a really big piece in 2013. He's had many since then, Um, but uh, we finally got him. So yeah, it was great. And he was, uh, once I got him, totally game to talk about all of this stuff and really thoughtful and clearly cares a lot about what goes into his work and what his approach is. So I I highly recommend this one. One thing I also highly recommend is starting an email newsletter with MailChimp. I'll tell you what, I have a podcast, a different podcast than this. I won't say its name. You've probably heard of it. We never started an email newsletter. We let the show become defunct. Now we're spinning it back up. I have no way to let people know. Don't make that mistake. If you're starting a project of any kind, start a newsletter so the people who care about it can stay in touch. It might die and then come back.
0: Thanks, Mailchimp. Now here's Aaron with Luke Mogelson.
2: Welcome, Luke Mogelson. Thank
3: you. Glad to be here.
2: You are a tough man to pin down for an interview. Yeah. Uh And I bet that means there's not that many interviews with you across your career. So I'm going to do my best uh, to be thorough. Where are you from?
3: Well, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. And I moved to California at a pretty young age, mostly grew up there. And I finished high school in Idaho. And it kind of fit with my youthful idea of a writer accruing a broad range of experience in the world to have material to work with later on.
2: Did you have writerly ambitions as a young person?
3: I did. Yeah, it's pretty much the only thing I I ever wanted to do. I think like a lot of people who were passionate readers at a young age, it was kind of a natural extension of that. How did you jump from there
2: to getting your your first paid gig as a writer? What did you do as a work thing in your life?
3: Oh, a lot. Uh, A lot of manual labor. Uh, I worked in the trades a lot. When I was in high school in California, I was on work study and uh, mostly worked in the trades, uh, construction and painting houses. Then in college during the summers, I I worked on commercial fishing boats in Alaska, which uh, led to... Uh, my first post-college job on a herring fishing boat in the San Francisco Bay, which then led to uh, a brief stint on New York City tugboats, working in the Long Island Sound and the East River and in New York Harbor, and then I eventually moved to New York City and worked like most kind of would-be freelance writers a variety of of gigs from helping my landlord remodel his basement, to eventually, actually what saved me and enabled me to stay in, in Brooklyn was uh, getting into the private tutoring racket.
2: I'm a fellow veteran. <laughs> okay. I've done a little SAT, a little anything goes, sure.
3: Yeah, SAT tutoring, which was kind of ironic because I didn't do too well on that <laughs> when I took it. <laughs>
2: What kinds of writing did you come to
3: Brooklyn to pursue? Well, I had, for most of my life, I'd wanted to be a fiction writer, Mm -hmm. mainly because that was what i had grown up really being obsessed with as a reader. And But then, I guess it was in my senior year of college, or maybe right after, in my early 20s in any case, I discovered Harper's Magazine, and that was a, a real revelation for me. And is pretty much what got me into long-form journalism, although I don't think that's what uh, folks were calling it at the time, I guess, literary journalism.
2: Were you reading New Harper's at the time or the Harper's Back Catalog?
3: Both, because actually at the time, Harper's had one of the first real digital archives, thanks to uh, Paul Ford. Oh, my God.
2: So right now we are taping Long Form Podcast 400 and I don't know what. I believe Long Form Podcast number three. The sound quality is terrible, but it's Paul Ford talking about basically sitting there with a consumer scanner and scanning the entire Harper's Archive, which is why it was online in whatever year this was.
3: Yep. Yep, exactly. I think he cut out every individual page with a razor and scanned them by hand. So, yeah, thanks to Mr. Ford, I was able to read the old David Foster Wallace pieces and William Volman pieces. And and then also at that time, you know, that was the real heyday of the magazine. and, And there was every month just incredible monumental pieces coming out by Jeffrey Charlotte, Ken Silverstein, Jack Hitt was a big influence for me, Matt Power. You know, a lot of these pieces that involved major commitment and time and resources and and sometimes risk on the part of the journalists. I'd never seen that before and, and found it really inspiring. I remember one piece in particular called Death of a Mountain by Eric Reese, where Reese went and basically camped out at the base of this mountain in Appalachia that was being strip mined and just documented over the course of a year, I believe, a kind of daily... Diary of the process of this mountain being literally killed. And it was just that was a a very inspiring piece of work to me because it just showed that there were outlets for people willing to really go to the limit and commit to covering a, a story as deeply and, and kind of intimately as they were able to. I want to ask you, as someone who's not a deep
2: committer and has never and would never do something like that in my life, but is interested in writing and appreciates the work. At that point in your life, what appealed about that and that approach?
3: I mean, I guess it was a mix of what I was getting from those pieces just as a reader and as a citizen and as a human (laughs) (laughs) in terms of how each individual piece was changing my relationship to the world and and my understanding of the world. I mean, just during the time it took for me to read it. I mean, that's kind of an amazing thing about great magazine pieces is that, you know, you can read them in one sitting and you often emerge a, a different person by the end of it with a lean, mean... Deep magazine piece. And by deep, I mean something that has months of work, reporting, and editing, and thinking and writing behind it. It can deliver that to a reader in one sitting. And then also, as an aspiring writer, obviously, it was doubly exhilarating because it introduced the possibility of creating such a thing, which, you know, at the time just seemed like a pretty far fetched ambition, but at least something to you know, strive towards.
2: When you talk about the kind of writing you're talking about, the first try is a pretty big commitment. Um, Where where did you put that ambition and what were your early attempts uh, like? Uh, Oh man. (laughs) Well, I'm going to put some like blooper real music under this part in the actual thing. Yeah,
3: like I ju- I, no, I just hesitate to mention them because I don't want anybody, you know, actually trying to look for them and read them because <laughs> they probably still exist somewhere on the Internet. But so my first magazine piece was for the Washington Monthly, and it was assigned by Charlie Homans, who was a senior editor there at the time and is now at the New York Times magazine an amazing editor and I pitched him on spec I don't know if people are still doing this but back then you would if you didn't have any clips you would basically propose an idea to an editor you you know I was just sending emails to generic email addresses and if they did respond they might say if you go and do this story and and pay for your own expenses we might we'll look at it
2: (laughs) If you do all of this, I will read it. That's the basic offer.
3: Yeah, yeah. So Charlie gave me that hope and I was thrilled. So I had pitched a story about probation reform, this kind of progressive uh, program that was being implemented in Michigan. And when Charlie said you know, that he, he gave me the green light on spec, I took out a credit card and went to Michigan and stayed actually at my friend's parents' house in Detroit in my friend's old like high school bedroom and rented a car you know on this credit card and stayed there for a while reporting the story then came back to New York and you know spent weeks or a month or two writing it and then worked with Charlie on it for another probably month or two (laughs) and then it finally came out and uh yeah, I think I got paid 250 bucks for that story, which like helped pay off some of the interest on the credit card that I had used for the expenses of it, but not much else.
2: <laughs> what did reporting on probation reform in Michigan look like in reality versus your conception when you were bulk emailing editors this idea?
3: Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. I mean, just the experience of Being able to call up uh, district attorneys, experts, probation officers, meeting with people who had been recently released from prison who are on probation. And just being able to have long conversations with complete strangers about their lives and their ideas and have them want to talk to you and genuinely want to communicate to people via you, their beliefs and, and experiences. To me, I, I just found that to be a, a pretty wild position to be in.
2: That ambition to go camp out at the uh, mountain base for nine months. When was the first chance you felt like you got a chance to go that
3: deep into a story? Once I moved to Afghanistan, I really tried to leave it all on the field for lack of a better metaphor. We have have to rewind. How did you get to Afghanistan? I mean, I was in the National Guard for three years in New York. So that ironically kind of prevented me from going to Afghanistan (laughs) Uh, just because of the unit I was in. didn't deploy or did deploy but not while I was in it
2: what led you to join the national guard at that juncture
3: i actually believed in in the war in afghanistan at the time and i had some naive ideas about responsibility citizenship service and how those related to the military and i you know also knew that i wanted to Write about the wars, and you know, if I'm being honest with myself, like that was a factor as well. Kind of using the army as a vehicle, as a way in, Mm. and I knew that the 69th Infantry, based uh, out of Manhattan, was supposed to deploy to Afghanistan. But in any case, I didn't deploy. And while I was still in the Guard in New York, you know, we we would just do our monthly weekend trainings. And for the rest of the month, I, I, I... first, I did a internship at Harper's Magazine, a summer internship. And that led to a part-time fact-checking gig at GQ, where I'd go in you know, two weeks out of the month or once a month for the close because it's a monthly magazine. And while I was working there, I met Joel Lovell, who was a senior story editor. And just an amazing editor. You know, he edited guys like John Jeremiah Sullivan and Mike Perdinetti. And um, I pitched him a story while I was there about this group of soldiers who were on trial out in Washington for war crimes that they had allegedly committed in Kandahar. You might remember them. They were referred to in the press as the kill team. Yeah. And Joel, for some reason, was willing to assign me the story. But when he took it to the editor-in-chief of GQ, who at the time was Jim Nelson, Nelson said no because, I mean, rightfully so, I didn't really have... Apart from my Washington Monthly story and one story in the nation, I didn't have any real experience to merit them taking that kind of chance on me. But uh, a couple weeks later, Joel left GQ to become the deputy editor at the New York Times magazine And then he called me up and asked me if I still wanted to do this story and would it be okay if we did it for the New York Times Magazine instead? So yeah, he really, I mean, I owe everything. I really owe my career to Joel. He took a huge risk on me and gave me a huge break and was incredibly supportive and encouraged me to go out to Washington and attend the trial and pursue the story for quite a long time until uh, we felt like we had uh, enough to do a big feature. And then, so then after that, I felt like I had enough, I won't say confidence, but enough lines to magazines to be able to make the leap and move to Afghanistan. I completed my contract with the National Guard, like I think it was like a week or two after that story came out. So the timing was fortuitous as well.
2: So you're pitching a story about the kill team, a group of U.S. soldiers, while at the same time, you're an active National Guardsman who could have been deployed into the same conflict that they were accused of uh, crimes in. Did your pitch include who you were? Was that
3: helpful, unhelpful? No, I, I kind of kept those two things separate. Yeah, those two lives separate, which, you know, in the guard, you can do every guardsman has these two parallel lives, the civilian life and the military life. That's kind of one of the interesting things about the National Guard, especially in New York, which it's got to have one of the most diverse units in the military. I mean, it's from all the boroughs and mostly working class guys. My platoon sergeant was a conductor on the 6th train from Panama. And that actually, the history of that unit is a very rich story onto itself. They took really heavy casualties in Iraq before I joined, guarding um, the airport road in Baghdad, which became known as Route Irish, because uh, the 69th Infantry is traditionally an Irish unit. But in any case, I kept those two worlds pretty separate. And... Because I didn't deploy and because it was the National Guard and, and not the full-time regular army, my pretty limited military service is not at all a defining yeah. experience or feature of my life. Um, if anything, like I think that the time I spent embedded with troops overseas and just reporting in war zones as a civilian journalist taught me more about... Frontline military culture than anything I really learned. That said, you know, it, it I, I did learn a lot in the army, and including very useful medical skills, which have come in handy, and just just kind of knowing the the rank structure and the acronyms and the the institutional organization, and that all comes in handy.
2: How does one uh, embed with a unit? What is the process to get? Permission to do
3: that? Well, one doesn't anymore. Oh, right. Okay, (laughs) that's kind of that's a major problem. It has been for a long time. But so I lived in Kabul for about three years between 2011 and 2014. I was based full time there, and at that time, you could still just fill out the application, get you know your credentials and everything from whatever sponsoring publication or outlet you were doing the embed for and request a region or a place or a unit to embed with. And uh, oftentimes you, you might not get exactly what you're asking for because the public affairs officers were always trying to direct reporters to places where things were going well, obviously. And the reporters were always fighting to get to places where things weren't going well. Yeah. So you'd usually end up somewhere kind of in between the yeah. two as a compromise. But I mean, I, I did a two month embed in, in 2011 or 12 with the Marines in Helmand province, during which I was essentially given free reign. And I, mean, I was literally jumping on Ospreys and, and helicopters going from one outpost to another with very little oversight or or babysitting from the PAOs. And that kind of access is non-existent now and has been for a long time. The Special Operations Forces have taken on an increasingly larger and more prominent role. And the culture of suspicion of outsiders and contempt for transparency that defines those forces has kind of infected the military at large. And by the way, by extension, has also infected the local forces that we partner with in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan. And then by extension, again, the governments that those forces defend which, of course, paradoxically, our military is supposed to have installed in order to um, increase things like free press and transparency and good governance.
2: You described yourself as someone who was in favor of that war at a certain part in your life. I guess I'm curious, like what? what your path from thinking about that war from really far away to like being around it up close for three years was like.
3: Yeah. I mean, I changed my mind pretty quickly after actually arriving there and and seeing the war for myself. (laughs) (laughs) I think like most people, honestly, who actually go to these places and spend time in them outside of, you know, embassies and and bases. So, yeah, I, I mean, the learning curve for me after moving to Afghanistan was extremely steep. I mean, to be completely honest, I had no business being there when I first went there. And it was a kind of awkward period where I was I was very conscious of how poorly qualified I was to be writing about this place and this conflict, especially for an outlet like the New York Times Magazine. So I... You know, I did everything I could to to bring myself up to speed. And there were a lot of people who have written about Afghanistan, who have covered Afghanistan, who, you know, had prior to the war spent a lot of time there or who had gone there directly after 2001. And there were also um, incredibly smart and talented Afghan journalists. And I think it took everybody a long time, too long to. Give them the opportunity to write about their own country that was being torn apart by by ours.
2: I'm curious about that as a research task coming out of that experience in Afghanistan where, you know, fuck, I did not do enough research before I arrived here. What do you do now when you're going into a really big story like this? How do you approach it to be the person who really feels like they know everything they need
3: to know? Yeah. I mean, well, you have to read everything you can before and, you know, to be clear, like I did do that before moving to Afghanistan. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't, there are a lot of yahoos out there who just show up at the, in these places. Um, you know, we've seen that in Syria. We saw that a lot in Libya and usually they're photographers, (laughs) but, uh, sometimes they're writers as well. And, I did before I moved to to Afghanistan read every book about the place in the war that, that I could find. And I think that that's incredibly important Mm. for anybody, anybody uh, listening who wants to get into this, you know, that's just basic, but still you could read every book in the world, but you're never going to be able to write about a place. Even after living there for years, even after, you know, gaining competency with the language, we as Americans, and especially, you know, me as a white male American, I will never be able to write about Afghanistan with the kind of nuance, subtlety, and truth that somebody like Mujib Mashal, the former Kabul bureau chief for the New York Times, was able to. So anyway, to get back to your question, that just puts even more pressure on you know, preparing ahead of time, talking to people, reading the books. I find reports really useful. Academic papers, they're a pain in the ass to read, but especially for any kind of conflict reporting, the International Crisis Group, places like this, all have extensive resources for anybody trying to get into the weeds Of the politics of a place. I mean, there's no reason to go abroad to write about somewhere in this day and age blind. There's just so much, you know, there's so many people doing amazing research and and mapping of conflicts and crises. Let's
2: talk about that idea, but uh, as related to a different story you wrote. So you wrote a story about migrants trying to reach Christmas Island. I feel like it was seven years ago, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah. and this is a major political issue in Australia. So when you're in a situation like that and you're sort of wading into a really important and heated issue in a different country, a different country with the, its own immigration policies, how do you prepare for that story And and, and what
3: attracted you to that story? Well that was a kind of a unique situation. It was really unlike any other story I've ever reported mainly because we ended up myself and the photographer Joel van Hoot, a Dutch photographer, ended up going undercover. Something I was really ambivalent about the time and remain ambivalent about today and 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 was not actually how we initially intended to do it but kind of ended up being necessary. So we wanted to write about the surge in Afghans fleeing the country, both because it was an incredibly dramatic and, and significant story on its own, the risks that these people were taking and, and the dangers and the discomforts that they were enduring and, in order to get to Western countries, not America. That was impossible but um, Europe and and Australia, and also because it it seemed to implicitly say something important about the state of of Afghanistan and the state of the war. And this was at a time when Obama and uh, Leon Panetta, his defense secretary, were really pitching the success of the war to the American people and to Congress, and were really framing the surge that Obama had ordered, As a success, when in fact it was a complete failure and disaster. And the war was a complete failure and disaster. And the Taliban was ascendant. And it was just, they were just lying. Either they were lying or they didn't know what was going on in in their own war. I don't know which one is preferable. And so to me, like one kind of irrefutable proof of that was how many Afghans were leaving the country and what they were willing to go through in order to get out. So that was the story we wanted to tell. And it was really important for us to report from the ground and in bed, so to speak, with the people that we were writing about. And the only group we could do that with, for practical reasons, were the folks trying to get to Australia.
2: Ah. I thought back on that image, it just flashed before my eyes, actually, of the billboards in Afghanistan that say, like, don't go to Australia. I was in detention for three years and they just sent me back. That's like one of the opening ones. But you weren't just focused on Australia. You were willing to take that migrant route anywhere. And that happened to be the one that you could do.
3: Exactly. Yeah.
2: And why was it necessary To do it undercover, and why are you still ambivalent about that?
3: Well, so Afghans were flying to Jakarta, which Indonesia at the time allowed most citizens of Muslim countries entry without a visa. So you could get that far. Iraqis, Iranians, and Afghans could get that far on a plane. And then it was possible to travel by boat from the island to a very small island, about a three or four day boat ride away that was part of um, Australian territory called Christmas Island. And they were under the mistaken impression that if they got to Christmas Island, they would be able to demand asylum. And the Australian government would be obliged by international treaties and law to consider their, requests and extend protection if they merited it. But what the Australian government was actually doing was detaining them immediately upon arrival and then sending them to an island nation called Nauru, which had worked out a deal with the Australian government to essentially hold all of these refugees in detention centers indefinitely. And the incredible thing was That this was widely known and it was widely discussed among the refugees. But they were so desperate for a life other than the one that they were fleeing that they just clung to this irrational hope that if they could only get to Christmas Island, something would happen. And so there was obviously no way to go on this journey and, and get onto these boats as journalists because the smugglers who operated them were, were criminals and, and, and paranoid also about law enforcement infiltration and being imprisoned for human trafficking. So our plan was to basically pretend to be refugees to the smugglers until we got onto the boat and then kind of... Introduce ourselves to the other refugees. And so we went to the local money market in downtown Kabul where one of a handful of smugglers had an office. And our cover story, because obviously, I mean, I guess it's a radio show, you can't see me, but I'm six foot four and white with a red beard. And Yoel doesn't look any more Afghan than I do. So we said that we were Georgians <laughs> and we said that we were, we did say that we were journalists cause you had his camera and was taking pictures of everything. So we said we were, you know, Georgian political refugees passing through Afghanistan, trying to get into this circuit towards Australia. It was pretty like overly elaborate uh, cover story and nobody really cared anyways, <laughs> <and> nobody... <laughs> but it worked. And so then we flew to Jakarta. And then when we got there, you know, we had a phone number that the guy in Kabul had given us that we called outside of a 7 Eleven in the 7 Eleven parking lot. And this guy came and picked us up and brought us to this like these huge tower complexes on the outskirts of the city where the smugglers had a bunch of safe houses. And so we were put into a little apartment with a family and basically stayed there for several weeks waiting for a boat to be ready. They used these rickety wooden fishing boats that are not seaworthy, which was why a lot of them had crashed. And I think at the time, a couple thousand people had died trying to make the crossing drowned because um, they overload these boats with people. And it became apparent pretty quickly once we were in the safe house that, uh, We wouldn't be able to reveal our identities at that time because the smugglers were constantly around and it was a very tense and paranoid environment. And uh, we debated, you know, pulling out at that point because of the obvious kind of ethical dilemma that was raised by being undercover. But we ultimately decided, you know, to see it through. And eventually we were brought to a boat that was loaded with, I think there were, it was around 75 people on this open hole wooden fishing boat with an outboard motor. And then once we got out to sea, uh, we left in the middle of the night. And once we got out to sea, it became a, apparent again that we wouldn't be able to reveal our identities for a couple practical reasons. One being that, everybody was immediately seasick. It was mostly Iranians on our boat. And so they they weren't used to being on the ocean. And so everybody was, and there were no toilets. There was no, and the seas were really rough. So there were waves crashing in on us all the time. You know, the boat like quickly filled up with vomit and feces and urine and everybody was really, really miserable. And there was no cover from the sun. So people got Very, very badly burned, especially Yoel, the Dutchman. (laughs) Um, And then also the engine, the outboard engine was so loud that you literally had to yell at the top of your lungs just for the person wedged in right next to you to be able to hear. So it just, you know, the idea that we would go around like yelling at people that we were journalists in that situation was not really... Tenable and would have probably been dangerous as well. Yeah, and it was something that nagged at me personally. It's you know, it, it, it's it's. Uh, I'm not an undercover journalist, and, and and I don't like feeling duplicitous, especially towards people whose stories I am there to honor. You know, it's it, it's one thing I think to go undercover in the way that Jeff Charlotte did, and With the family and jesus plus nothing i mean he wasn't really undercover or the way that shane bauer you know did as a prison guard or uh ted conover did and when you're trying to write about people that are hiding activities or ideas that you want to expose as toxic or dangerous or just somehow deleterious to society you know that's a different relationship between reporter and subject yeah. than mine usually is. Like usually it's been a little different than 2020 reporting in the U S but usually I'm not, I don't have an adversarial relationship with my subjects. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be their advocate. And so to go undercover in that dynamic, that situation is, um, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable. It doesn't sit well.
2: So, Less than a month ago, uh, you were presented with another situation at the Capitol riots where uh, it sounded like you had spent the several days before that sort of milling around the area. When you're sort of pre-visualizing a day like that day, you're getting ready for the day. Are you thinking through a game plan like, this is what I do if they actually get inside? This is what I do if the police start shooting or push them back. I guess in your mind, in these sort of high pressure, high stakes situations, what are you planning to be doing while various things are happening as a journalist who's there witnessing
3: it? Uh, Get to the front and document as much as you can, yeah. record as much as you can. You have a pretty monomaniacal, specific focus when things are going down. And that's just to, for me as a writer, like, I'm trying to gather as much material as I can to have to work with when I sit down to write the piece. But I think like my approach is much more similar to photographers than other writers. Uh, I spend a lot of time with photographers and a lot of my friends are photographers. And, and oftentimes, you know, I feel like I've gotten pretty good at getting myself to sit into situations where there's few or maybe no other writers around, but there's always a bunch of photographers around. So like (laughs) I try to get in like right behind the first photographers. Never. If there's no photographers around, then I'm probably somewhere I shouldn't be.
2: (laughs) A question I ask a lot of writers, like in this moment is what kind of mental notes you're taking during these moments. Like what are you looking for? What are you capturing? Are you writing it down in the case of, the Capitol riot. I actually can see your iPhone footage. Is filming an effective way to sort of trigger your memory of what happened, or is the filming something that you're thinking for later presentation? Like, do you use filming as a, a note-taking technique? Is I guess what that's all
3: it is. That's all it is. I mean, that was really anomalous. Our publishing that excerpt of my iPhone footage. You know, I try to film everything. For a couple reasons. One is just because it's so much more effective than trying to note every detail down in, in a notebook. Um, and two, for fact checking purposes, The New Yorker, as you know, probably everyone listening to this is aware, has a rigorous fact checking process. And I like to write, I really try to write scenes. I think that's for me, the articles that I enjoy reading the most are really structured around scenes that involve people doing things and interacting with each other as opposed to with the reporter. And so for those parts of the article, it's just much easier to be able to upload, you know, video of whatever I'm describing in the piece to a Dropbox folder for the fact checkers to check against. Um, So when I first started reporting in Afghanistan, I didn't have an iPhone and I used a voice recorder. And so when I'd go out in the field or when I'd go on embeds, I would just dictate into the voice recorder everything that was happening. Everything that I would see or details that I would notice, uh, things that people were doing. And then when people would talk to each other, I'd just capture that with the audio recorder. And then when I would come back home and do my transcripts, I would just type out the audio And it would be uh, essentially a a running script of everything that I'd seen. And then I had a little digital camera and I would use the details from the stills to fold into that script. And that would essentially be the scenes for the article. So then, you know, once I got hip to the iPhone, (laughs) that kind of streamlined that process especially
2: shifting from the like old school Dictaphone to the iPhone, when you're recording these scenes, do you feel like the presence of the filming iPhone like changes the scene? Do people start playing to the phone or notice that there's someone filming?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I really, I think much less so than they do to the, the photographer who's there with like a legit looking piece of equipment, you know? Yeah. In a way that the iPhone is discreet enough and it's ubiquitous enough now that people don't really even notice it. I mean, in the Capitol, I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't interact with anybody. And as you can see from that footage, you know, everybody's kind of openly engaging in criminal activity while sometimes mugging for the camera. And I think that is just, there's also so many live streamers out and about now at these things that you can get away with filming a lot without drawing attention to yourself.
2: You said that you didn't speak to anyone in the rotunda or or in, in these various areas. Why not? Do you normally in a situation like that interact with people or do you try to? Well, I didn't
3: want to lie, you know, I didn't want to uh... lie and I was worried like I wasn't wearing any credentials. Mm. I didn't have anything on me identifying myself as press because they were attacking journalists and but I also didn't want to have to tell somebody I wasn't press if they asked me. And I also I didn't want to give any kind of indication or just as importantly be seen uh, to be giving any kind of encouragement to these people and what they were doing. So I just had a strong sense that if I engaged with anybody, it would only lead to a very ethically fraught exchange
2: Hmm.
3: and potentially incriminating.
2: (laughs) Was that true for like the three days or however many days you were sort of in Washington before that? Like a lot of the story actually is, Taking place on the back streets, the pubs of Washington in the days leading up to it. Were you also
3: not really interacting with people during that period? Pretty much, yeah. I did not interact. I mean, I interacted with and interviewed a lot of anti fascist activists, Black wow. Lives Matter activists around um, Black Lives Matter Plaza. But as far as the far right extremists, the Proud Boys, the Groipers, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, all of these guys, especially at night when they were out marauding around the White House and assaulting people. No, I I did not talk to any of them. I just kind of hung back and observed and filmed and took notes when sometimes, you know, it wasn't really possible to film because of the stuff that they were doing. And also it just every situation is a little different you kind of have to have a feel for the vibe. And if the vibe, uh, wasn't right, you know, I would just actually write in my notes on my iPhone as if I were typing out a text, you know, Mm. what was
2: this year like for you? I reread the last two pieces that you did for the New Yorker. Uh, one of them about Antifa, uh, the other one about the Capitol riots. And I mean, it sounds like you've been, immersed in these movements uh two de- uh opposing movements for a lot of the last year tell me what that was like putting these stories together how much time you spent with different groups of people and, and how you structure something like that
3: yeah um it was a trip because it was basically my first time since i reported that washington monthly article in michigan working in the U S as a journalist. So, you know, that had been in, I don't know, 2009. And it was also my first time being in the U S at all in any capacity for more than a couple weeks um, since 2011. Where had you been previously before you returned? Kind of all over. I, I mean, after I left Afghanistan, I spent some time in Istanbul, I spent a couple years in Mexico. I uh, live in France now. My wife is French, so we live there now. But yeah, I I had really avoided the U.S. I was working in the Middle East. I had worked in Syria, worked in Iraq. And so there was a lot of stuff to do (laughs) overseas and not much reason for me anyway to be here.
2: What was the homecoming like for you? And what was it like? Kind of returning to reporting on Americans,
3: yeah. I mean, or it has been complicated, I guess. So I, I asked my editor at the New Yorker, who, by the way, is uh, Daniel Zaleski, incredible editor. I've been very blessed um, with editors between Joel Level and, and Daniel Zaleski, and that's also been a huge part of why I've written the articles that I've written. But uh, I wrote Daniel on April 30th from my apartment in France asking if I could come back to the U.S. and and do some reporting here. April 30th was when the militia members in Michigan entered the state capital in Lansing and, with assault rifles and approached the barred doors of the legislature and chanted at the lawmakers. So I saw that and said to myself, Might be a good time to (laughs) go back to the U.S. and see what's going on there. I had actually just been in in Raqqa, in Syria, working on an article about the U.S. withdrawal from northern Syria and um, the abandonment of our Kurdish allies there. And the summer before that, I'd gone back to Afghanistan to do a piece on on how things stood there with the peace negotiations slash withdrawal. And everywhere I, I had been working, you could feel the results and the effects of Trump's America First foreign policy. But I had never I'd never written about the effects of his domestic policies at home. So after I wrote Daniel asking if I could come to the US on April 30th, I came to Michigan and I started hanging out with these right-wing militias that were mobilizing against the lockdown measures of the democratic governor Gretchen Whitmer and I started spending time with these guys and gaining a kind of better understanding of what was animating them or so I thought and that's what I was doing and that's who I was with when George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis and As the protests there over the next day or two grew in size and unruliness, I decided to go there. It was about a nine-hour drive from Lansing, where I was staying, to Minneapolis. And I arrived in Minneapolis around one in the morning, I think. And I went straight to the third precinct police station, which is the station to which uh, Derek Chavon had been assigned the officer who killed George Floyd. And I got there just after the police had evacuated the building and the protesters had taken it, essentially, and lit it on fire. And then over the next, you know, week or two, I got to know the frontline protesters in Minneapolis for whom, you know, this, what was becoming this national and then global reckoning was deeply personal and intimate. A lot of them knew George Floyd and knew the officers who were involved in his murder. And, you know, there is a direct line I think that you can draw from that historic uprising for racial justice to the January 6th storming of the U S Capitol that was spearheaded by, white nationalists. And it was just kind of by chance that I happened to be present for both of those and a few of the key moments in between, including in Portland, that propelled that trajectory. But I think that it's important that we remember with all this talk about the insurrection at the Capitol, that that was a direct consequence and reaction to what for me was an unbelievably powerful and unprecedented outpouring of legitimate grievance and emotion in Minneapolis seven months prior. And it was really interesting because when I left Michigan to drive to Minneapolis, everybody was talking about the lockdown measures, the mask mandates, essentially the the public health policies that have been put in place by the governor as these tyrannical forms of autocratic persecution. And when I came back, all those same groups were suddenly talking about law and order, backing the blue, standing up to the existential menace posed by left-wing extremists, that everyone now, post George Floyd, was calling antifa. So there was a, I you know I could see it. I could see the the transition basically, and how this essential, fundamental kind of animating force of white grievance just shifted from one target to another, and then a few months later to another with the Stop the Steal campaign, when these same people convinced themselves that they had been disenfranchised. And then I actually saw a couple of the the same individuals on the steps of the Capitol, charging towards the police line. So you know, these things are all connected. And I think uh, a lot of times we know with um, the kind of news cycle, we lose sight of that.
2: I've taken a bunch of your time. I really appreciate it. I'll make this uh, my last question. Where do you go from here? What excites you going forward?
3: I mean, I guess uh, I'll have to see what happens. Um, I'm kind of banking on, everybody in the country reconciling and getting behind a progressive democratic agenda and in which case i'll um i'll try to write an article or maybe a book about um fly fishing in montana
2: (laughs) sounds good (laughs) thank you so much for this interview i uh i really appreciate it appreciate you That was the Long Form Podcast. Thank you very much to Luke Mogelson for agreeing to do this. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Susan Peterson, my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, and the good people at MailChimp who make this show possible. We'll be back next week.